Church family, be seated. And as you are, will you take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 32? Uh, We're going to be in both Genesis 32 and all of 33 this morning as those two chapters uh, contain one uh, unit here in the text. We will stand and just read uh, the first eight verses of 32 in a moment. Uh, But before we do that, as you get settled, I want to tell you about some resources that are out in the lobby. There are two different invitation cards. One's just a little larger. They have the same information on them, but we have a large invitation card and a small one, both for Easter service, our Easter services. We will have two services, 930 and 11, uh, on that day coming up in uh, three weeks. You know, it was a year ago tomorrow was our first service that was affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We actually had service on March 15th. Uh, There weren't many of you here. That was the week that everything started shutting down. All of the sports leagues canceled. Nobody knew what was going on. We made the decision to cancel small groups. Uh, And then later, the, uh, the day or two after we had that service, was when we had to close down for in-person worship uh, for the better part of three months. This has been a rough year for people. Uh, This has touched everybody's lives. It's been difficult for us. Even if you've not had someone in your family uh, fall ill from this disease, you likely know someone that has, and you've at least been affected where you work, how you shop, how you interact as a community. But because of that, it has led people to, to want to have conversations that are looking for hope. And there is no greater hope than we could offer people than Jesus. And there is no greater place to find that than in the story of his death, burial, and resurrection, which is what we will celebrate on Easter Sunday. It's not just another day on the calendar. It's when we're reminded that he rose from the dead so that we too might have life. So in a year that has been so focused on pandemic and death, What better hope could we offer people than life? And so talk to your neighbors, talk to your family members, talk to your coworkers, use these cards in the lobby to invite them to join you on Easter Sunday, or if nothing else, to at least join us online. Because both of our services on that day, as they are uh, today, will be live uh, broadcast on on several streaming platforms. So use this uh, Easter season particularly this one coming out of this pandemic now as a year we've been in this together as an opportunity uh, to engage people about what the, the hope that the Lord has offered to us that we celebrate on Easter. Would you stand with me as we read and honor God's word here in the first eight verses of Genesis 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw that he said, this is God's, saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He believed the people who were with him. 
Uh, He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word that it is true. Help us, God, to know that this isn't just a historical event. This isn't just a story in the Bible, but this is your word written to and for us that we might believe, that we may find in it hope, life, and instruction for how we are to live So God, would you use your word today by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives to continually change us into the image of your son and to birth new life in the lives of those who are lost, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Today's sermon is entitled, A Life-Changing Encounter. This is what we see in the life of Jacob and Esau. In the life of Jacob as he encounters a man who will find out is the Lord and Esau, his brother, that Jacob's life will never be the same as it was before. We all likely have these moments in our lives, particularly if you have very much age on you at all. There are moments that you look back on in your life and say, things that were never the same from that moment. Sometimes these are good events. Sometimes they are not. Could be the thing like marriage, the birth of a child. It could be something like the death of a loved one, the loss of a job. But there should also be spiritual markers along the way. Certainly for Christians in the room and joining us now online, you should be able to look back to the moment of your salvation where you recognize that you could not save yourself, but only through faith in Jesus Christ that you could be saved. That should certainly be a marker for you. Another one for me, Looking back into my teenage years in the late June of 1994 at youth camp, which is one of the reasons I'm such a fan of youth camp and encourage parents to send their kids to camp every summer. It's because at Covenant College in Chattanooga, Tennessee, at a youth camp, the Lord called me to ministry. I felt that call so strongly from that moment till today. I have never been tempted to ever do anything else with my life but shepherd and teach the local church. That's a marker in my life. And there are likely those in yours where you you look back and you say, things will never be the same. There are two of those in this story of Jacob. Throughout his life, there is so much that we're told of him about his depravity. We see so much of his soul laid bare before us and his humanity and just how deceitful and scheming Jacob was. But there are two life moments That if you were to ask Jacob, I believe he would say, because of those moments, my life was never the same. They both happened to be on journeys. One, journeying away from Canaan, leaving his mother and father and the home that he knew, fleeing from his brother who wanted to kill him, going to his mom's homeland to find a wife. He encounters God there in the Judean wilderness, alone at night. The Lord appears to him at the top of a ladder where angels are are ascending and descending before him. And it is there that the promise of God becomes real in Jacob's life. 20 years has passed since that moment. He's gone to Mesopotamia. He's lived with his father-in-law who was as much, if not more so, deceitful than Jacob. 
but the Lord has richly blessed him, both with material wealth and in his family. And it is now with all of those possessions and with that family that the God is leading him to go back to the land that he had promised to bless him with. And it is on that journey where we see Jacob really have two encounters, one with the Lord and one with his brother Esau that will make his life different forever. Here in these two chapters are competing ideas. Really, there's three sections to this text. And in each one, we have competing ideas that contrast one another from what things were to what God makes them. So let's see that first one. This first competing idea within Jacob is the desire to trust the Lord versus his fleshly desire to prepare and scheme and make his own way as he prepares to meet his brother. What we saw there from those first eight verses that we read at the beginning of the sermon is Jacob's now returning and he's not in Canaan yet, but he's coming close. And so he sends some servants to find his brother. He finds his brother, not in Canaan, but in Edom, a, a nearby nation. They find Esau and they return and they say, your brother, we've told your brother you're coming and he's not waiting for you. He's coming for you. And he's coming with 400 men. Now church, there's only one reason he should be coming with 400 men. 400 men is an army. Esau is coming with an army for his brother. And so Jacob is afraid, we're told in the text. He fears his brother and he, he really makes one piece of preparation. He divides his camp in half, at least being somewhat practical, thinking, well, if they kill one camp, the other will be able to escape. But then Jacob does what he should have done all along. He prays. He prays for the Lord's protection from his brother Esau. Pick up in verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sands of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. There are several things that we should note about Jacob's prayer that makes it a good prayer. This is, this is Jacob demonstrating trust in the Lord. First, Jacob recognizes that it is the Lord who blessed him. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, deceiver, right? Heel grabber, this one who has always sought to make his own way, that, that schemed against his brother to barter for his birthright, that schemed against his father to trick him into giving his blessing. This one who was always back and forth with his father-in-law. He recognizes it's God who has richly blessed me. Jacob sees his own position. He says, I'm not worthy of what you've done for me. It is only by your hand that I have been so blessed. The second positive thing we can note here is that Jacob is honest with the Lord. He says, I am afraid. Jacob doesn't pretend to be something he's not. He knows his brother has hated him for 20 years. He knows that even before he 
deceived his father into stealing that birthright, stealing that blessing. He and his brother had been at war with one another since they were in their womb. These two had struggled so mightily even in the womb that it drove their mother to prayer. He knows that his brother's coming for him. He's coming with 400 men and he can't match that. And so he admits that fear of Esau to the Lord. So often our prayers aren't as honest even as Jacob's is here. We want to act as if we have all, everything together. We want to present to the Lord this put together, well-dressed, well-rehearsed prayer as if God doesn't know what's already going on inside of us. God knew that Jacob was afraid, but Jacob still tells him he's afraid. God knows that Jacob doesn't have it all together, but Jacob admits that to the Lord. When we go to the Lord in prayer, we should, be, we should follow the model that Jacob gives here. God, I have doubts. God, I have fears. God, I have confusion. God, I'm just not sure what I'm supposed to think or what I'm supposed to do. Will you help me? And that's what Jacob does. He recognizes that it's God that blesses him and he recognizes that he has to admit to God just how fearful he is. And then Jacob gives us a third demonstration that's, that's very useful and that is that he quotes the word of God back to God. He does it both at the beginning and at the end of this text. In verse nine, he says, you're the one who said, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. He reminds God, you're the one that told me to do this. We were fine where we were. Sure, my father-in-law was, you know, kind of a jerk, but we were all right. But you're the one that told me to come back, didn't you? So he reminds God of that. At the end of the prayer, he says, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. He reminds God of his promise. Now, does God need reminding of his promise? No. God knew before Jacob was born of this promise. God knew before this world existed of this promise. God didn't need reminding, but it's never a bad thing to pray the words of God back to him. That's what it means to pray the will of God. Jacob is praying according to the will of God. He said, God, you said this. And so I'm going to need you to keep your word. I'm going to need you, God, to do what you have said you will do. So we see this positive prayer in Jacob, but the prayer ends and we see the contrast that Jacob then prepares for his encounter with his brother. And he doesn't prepare for his encounter with his brother according to what he prayed. He prepares for his encounter with his brother according to his deceptive and scheming nature. Let's look at what he does in verse 13. He says, so he stayed there that night and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servant, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the presence, with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him and he himself stayed that night in the camp. 
in all of these verses, this plan, this scheme that Jacob concocts, there is no mention of the Lord's protection. There's no mention of the Lord's guidance. There's no mention that this was the Lord's will at all. Jacob prays, showing one side, and now Jacob schemes, showing another. The Lord did not instruct Jacob to do so. We can we can recognize that from the silence. The biblical author would have told us if this was God's plan, but it wasn't. This was Jacob's plan. He's relying on his own cunning. He's relying on his old self to appease his brother. He's thinking that if I could put enough gifts between me and him, right? This is like the 12 days of Christmas for Esau. If I could just put enough between me and him and he'll get the, the sheep, he'll get the goats, he'll get the cows, he'll get the camels. He's gonna get all of this. Maybe it's gonna soften him a little bit. And if nothing else, if he starts attacking those first ones, I'm gonna have time to flee. He's really putting a buffer, right? Between himself and his brother. Now, this isn't to say that we're supposed to pray and just sit still. Don't hear that as the encouragement today. But our actions shouldn't contradict our prayers. Our actions should be in line with them. Jacob's wasn't. You're seeing the duality within Jacob here, both a desire to trust the Lord and a desire to make his own way. When we pray, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't act, but our actions should be according to the will of God. And listen, this is not according to the will of God. We should do what God has instructed us in, our, in his word. So hear me, here's how we pray. We pray, God, I'm honest with you. I need your help. Here's, here's, here's where I'm struggling. And then we turn to God's word, his revealed will to us. And we see what it has to say and we live obediently according to it, trusting that God will keep his word. So Jacob, on one hand, desiring the protection of God, and on the other, still very much Jacob, the heel-grabbing deceiver. The second part of this text, we also see a comparison from the old Jacob to the new Israel. Jacob will end up in this text being completely alone. And he will wrestle with the Lord, being forced to come to terms with his old self. Pick up in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 children, these 11 boys, he at least had one other girl, and crossed the ford of the Yabak. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. The narrative jumps here directly into Jacob awaking in the middle of the night. We're not told why Jacob awakes in the middle of the night. We're not told what his scheme is here. But for some reason, he thinks it's going to be best for me to cross the river. Now, the Yabak River is a river that runs east to west on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So on a modern map, this is in present day Jordan. And following the road from Mesopotamia down into Canaan, through Canaan into Egypt would have taken you on that side of the Jordan River. And the Yabak River is not a very deep river, but it does cut very deep valleys into the land. And so he awakes that day and, and goes to the place where people cross. And you kind of get... Uh, 
a picture that maybe Jacob crosses it, maybe he doesn't, because it says in 22 that he crosses, but it says in 23 that he just sends the, the, his wives and children, and he ends up alone. Whether Jacob's crossed with them or not, at some point in the night, Jacob becomes alone. For the first time in 20 years, in the biblical text, Jacob is alone. This is a guy with at least, a little, at least 12 kids at this point two wives and two servants who he's also taken in as his wife. This guy hadn't had any alone time in two decades. And the last time we see him alone in the text, God appears to him in the Judean wilderness. And here again, the text just jumps right into Jacob is wrestling with a man. Now, you may have read this story before and I know I've already given away that we find out this is the Lord, but we're not told that right away. We're just told that Jacob's wrestling with a man. Is this somebody from Esau's camp? Is this somebody that guarded the river? Is it somebody that lived locally that doesn't like Jacob being there? We're not told who this person is right away. We're just told that he's wrestling with him. How did this wrestle match start? We don't know because that's not the point. So why? Because this is strange. This is unique, right? There are several unique moments that happen in, uh, over the course of the 50 chapters of Genesis, but this one is one of the most unique. Just all of the sudden, as he prepares for this battle with his brother, Jacob finds himself in a wrestling match, not with his brother, but with a man that turns out to be the Lord. The Old Testament personification, just as the Lord came to Abraham in human form, this, that's who this is. Why? Why does Jacob spend this evening wrestling with the Lord? What is the point of this strange event? Jacob is the point. The whole point of this event, of this late night wrestling match that goes all the way to dawn, is for Jacob to finally see who he is. It's interesting where this takes place because the name Jacob, the river, that this is happening on the banks of, and the word for wrestle in the Hebrew are all very similar. They actually all share the same letters, just in different order. And so when you read this in the original text, it's really clear that this is all about Jacob. That Jacob has wrestled his entire life with both men and God He wrestled in the womb with his brother Esau. He competed throughout their early lives together for their parents' favor. He wrestled with his father as he sought to deceive him. He wrestled with his father-in-law for the last 20 years about what woman he would marry and what his payment for his service would be. He is Jacob, the heel grabber. And this is why the Lord, at the end of this wrestling match, when the Lord ends it simply by touching his hip socket and throwing it out of place and making it where Jacob can't wrestle anymore, he still holds on to the man. You notice what the man asks him. What is your name? Now listen, the Lord knew his name. (laughs) It's not as if God doesn't know that this is Jacob. Why would he ask him that? because it's time for Jacob to come to grips with who he is. It's time for him to say, I'm the heel grabber, I'm the deceiver, I'm the schemer, I'm the unworthy one. What is your name? I am Jacob. Old me, unworthy to cross into the promised land. 
But now the Lord blesses and renames Jacob. Pick up in verse 28. He said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, for this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. He's no longer Jacob. He's now Israel. That means to struggle or to strive with God or that God struggles and strives for. This is one of two naming events in the life of Jacob. In two weeks, we'll be in Genesis 35 and we'll see the second time and we'll delve further into the fact that God is now going to call him Israel. What we need to know for our intentions here in this text is that Jacob is no longer Jacob. He's no longer the same. This encounter with God has made him entirely different. Going into what will be the battle of his life, or at least he thinks will be the battle of his life, limping now because of his encounter with the Lord. Jacob is now Israel. He noticed what he says. He says, tell me your name. God says, why, why would you ask my name? You know exactly who I am. God doesn't have this. God didn't need to come to grips and come to terms with his past as Jay did. It was Jacob who did. It's he who needs to go from old to new. And here in this late night struggle and encounter with God, that is exactly what happens. Number three, enemies become brothers. This is recorded in the 33rd chapter of Genesis. And we see this final preparation being made by Jacob to meet Esau. But you'll notice as I read this, the difference between what he was doing yesterday to what he's doing today. Pick up in verse one there of Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. That hasn't changed. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph Last of all, now look at verse three. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Yesterday, Jacob wanted to put as much stuff between his brother Esau and himself as he possibly could. That was his scheme, right? Put the goats and the sheep and the donkeys and the camels and the bull, put all of that in between. Maybe that'll soften his heart. Without this change that he experienced the night before, we could assume that what Jacob would have done here was put himself at the back of this pack too. Maybe, maybe he'll have compassion on me because of my wives. Maybe he'll have sympathy for me because of my children. But that's not what Jacob does. He does line them all up. But instead of going to the back, Jacob goes to the front. He's no longer the deceiving schemer that he once was. Now he is standing all alone, ready to meet his brother. And Jacob and Esau are reconciled and the blessing of the Lord is shared. Pick up in verse four, but Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the woman and children, he said, who are these with you? Then Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant drew near 
they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. What Jacob intended in Genesis 32 as a bribe now becomes a blessing. He recognizes this, is, this wasn't needed It wasn't needed that I set all of these things in droves out ahead of me, hoping to soften the heart of my brother. The Lord had softened the heart of my brother, and now my enemy has become my brother. And that blessing that was bartered all those years ago, that blessing that was stolen from the father, is now shared. Jacob says, this is what God has given me. Here, brother, take abundantly from it. Oh, what a difference the Lord's change in our lives make. That he could go from making men who had been enemies since their birth to being brothers, sharing in the blessing of God. Lastly, Jacob makes a temporary home, but a permanent investment and altar. After this encounter, here's what happens. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows the children are frail and the nursing flock and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord and seer. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to seer. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came uh, safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan on his way way from Padam Haram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land of which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Now, Jacob and Esau, made by the power of God to be brothers, part ways. And you notice the change in Jacob. Esau says, well, let me leave some of my men with you to protect you. You've been gone for a long time. You've got all of these herds with you. You have all of these women and children. Let me leave some men, some fighting men with you to protect. And he says, no, no need for that. No longer a need for schemes. No longer a need for me to try to provide for myself. I'm going to just trust the Lord. And then we see Jacob after Esau leaves going to two places. The first is still on the east side of the Jordan. It says that he builds a house there, but really we need to understand this as a temporary dwelling place. It's not a permanent residence. But maybe he just needs to heal from his hip injury. Maybe he needs to, from the long journey from Mesopotamia, he needs to allow the children to rest and the livestock to rest, but for whatever reason, he stops for a while, then crosses some logistical information about where he went. But don't miss this. What Jacob does upon entering into the promised land is intended to mirror what Abraham did in his time in the promised land. You see, in Genesis 23, 
Abraham, after spending decades in the promised land as a sojourner, finally buys land. He buys a piece of property, staking his claim to that which God had promised. And upon returning to the promised land after 20 years, he was called out of Mesopotamia to go to the land that God would show him. And he faithfully follows. He comes to, in Genesis 12, a place called Shechem, the same place where Jacob is. And he comes and he passes through there. And the, it's the, Genesis 12 tells us the Canaanites were in the land at that time. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to your offspring, I will give this land. So he does what? He builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Just as Abraham built an altar in Shechem, so does Jacob. The words are different though. Abraham, every other time that we've seen someone build an altar, it's been this word that's translated build. But do you notice what we see in Genesis 33? It doesn't say he builds an altar. It says he erects an altar. It's possible at least that, Ab that uh, Jacob doesn't build a new altar. But Jacob goes back to the place that all those years before Abraham had constructed a new altar and he repairs it. He fixes it. He's at least following in his grandfather's footsteps. New man Jacob builds an altar to the Lord buys a piece of land, he is now home. So what? Only through coming to a full understanding of our inability to save ourselves can we enter into the kingdom of God. Jacob had amassed much wealth serving that two decades with the, in the house of his father-in-law, so much so that his father-in-law became poor as he became wealthy. He had amassed not only great physical wealth, but he had amassed this incredible family. He had his wives, his children, and he's on his way back to the promised land. But old Jacob was not worthy to go into that land. Old Jacob was not worthy of that blessing of God. Old Jacob was not ready. Only knew Israel through an encounter with the Lord. And we too must understand that we have to recognize who we truly are if we are to be saved. Jacob wrestles with the Lord in this text. And the Lord finally says, what is your name? I am Jacob, fully owning up to who he has been. And the Lord gives him a new name. And the same is true for us. It is through our understanding of our inability to save ourselves that we can enter into the kingdom of God. The promised land here represents the kingdom of God. It is God's redemptive narrative that he's telling here in Genesis that ultimately leads to the promised land, God's holy nation, which is a picture for us of God's eternal kingdom. And how do we enter it? We enter it through an encounter with God where we recognize our sin and our inability to save ourselves. During Jesus's ministry in first century Israel, one of the greatest doctrinal battles he faced was the, preva the prevailing idea of the day being that rich people had earned their way into the kingdom. That rich people were obviously rich because God favored them and that they above anyone else would take part in God's kingdom. And so Jesus on several occasions directly addresses this doctrine, but listen in Matthew 19 is one of those places. He says to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person into the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You see, we saw from that text in Genesis 32 and 33 that it wasn't Jacob's wealth or cunning that made him Israel returning to the promised land. It was the work of the Lord to do the impossible in his life that changed him and made him able to enter. And the same is true. This is why Jesus says it's easier for a rich man to enter the, through the eye of a needle for this, or for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle, this huge animal to go through this tiny little hole. Impossible, right? But with God, all things are possible. Who are the rich men in this? It's anyone who would look at themselves and think, I have earned it. It's not just those who have temporal wealth. It's anyone who would look at themselves and think, I've made my own way. I'm righteous on my own. I've done enough to make God happy with me. Jesus says it is impossible for that person to save themselves absolutely impossible. Just as this amassed wealth for Jacob could not allow him to cross over that river, but an encounter with God, the same is true as it relates to us and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is available to you today, my friend, but you will never earn your way into it. You'll never find your own path. You'll never make your own way. You can't buy your way in. But Jesus has done the impossible for you. And it is only through faith in him and his work coming to recognize that you can't do it, but he did do it, that you may be saved. So would you believe that today? Would you trust in that alone for your salvation? Turning to him, putting up this marker, recognizing that on this day, you came to the recognition that you can't do it, but Jesus did do it. Oh, and Christian, would we not fall back as Jacob so often did into our own schemes, into our own way, believing that somehow we can make a path better for us than God could make. But let us walk in full recognition that the only thing worthy of us is what he is doing in us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would bring us to that realization that without you, we are nothing. But with you, oh God, we have the eternal blessing in the kingdom of God. So would you draw men and women and boys and girls to salvation right now, that they would see that they can't do it on their own, but that Jesus did in their place, earning them a right position for all of eternity with God, if they will but believe repent and be saved. Thank you, God, that you didn't leave it up to us because up to us is old Jacob, but you make us ones who have strived with God and for whom God has strived. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.